You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves in the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Each week, Roger is joined by Joe and Vince. Welcome to For the Lore, this is Roger coming to you on the 21st of April. We actually talked about a game a while back that was first announced at one of the cons. Don't tell me exactly which one because I don't recall. But we do remember when the game came out, that when it was announced, it was it had an interesting kind of hook to it that interested all three of us, especially being that we love story-driven games. And that game, of course, was What Remains of Edith Finch. Now... It had a very cool feel to it. It looked like it would have a very interesting story as well, broken up into different segments. And we'll get into the the nitty-gritty of that in a moment. But it was a game that immediately kind of hooked on to you in terms of people who like that idea of exploration, of figuring out a mystery, of, of being entertained by different means, not using the same kind of gameplay that we see in a lot of games. And, and not just first-person shooters, but a lot of actual story-driven games still rely on a lot of those same mechanics, whereas this felt, again, more like an exploration in a story being told. We are very fortunate to have with us Ian Dallas from Giant Sparrow, the studio who is actually working on this game. So, Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, why don't you tell the folks what it is that you do there, actually? Uh, I'm the creative director at Giant Sparrow. Okay. So how long have you been there? Uh, Since the very beginning. Uh, So I uh, started the company in 2009 uh, to work on The Unfinished Swan. And then uh, we've been working on What Remains of Edith Finch since that game released. Uh, So it's coming up on about four and a half years on this game. Jeez. Now, that's the thing with the the Unfinished Swan, before we even get started on What Remains of Edith Finch, it was such an original experience that conveyed so much, again, using original game mechanics. First of all, thank you for that. I thoroughly enjoyed that game. Now, I think it's important to, again, people are going out of the way to create something, and a lot of the time you're going to get people shit on you for it. I think it's important (laughs) for people to say, you know what? No, I loved what you did. I spent a great many hours playing it in this case, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And that was one of the things that got me excited for what remains of Edith Finch, being that the Unfinished One wasn't just a very interesting story. It was also in how it was told. Is that something that you kind of pride your 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 studio on being built upon? Yeah, I mean, I would say that even more so than you know being story driven, these games are experience driven. They're you know uh, designed to put players into situations that they've never experienced before and then give them an opportunity to explore that. So it's really more about, uh, you know, the act of exploration and the experience of confronting the unknown than it is about, you know, what you're going to find there. Cool. So with Edith Finch, was this an idea that you guys had in mind before or while you were working on Unfinished Swan? Uh, to some extent. I mean, the game started off when I was in graduate school as a uh, scuba diving simulator. <laughs> so that was- <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it existed, um, just not in a form that, like, you would probably recognize. But, yeah, the you know initial concept was creating something that, you know, evoked the sublime. Uh, moments where, you know, you feel simultaneously, um, you know, like you're in the presence of something really beautiful, but also a little bit unsettling and overwhelming. And, you know, initially that took the form of scuba diving because uh, that was, in my own experience, one of those moments that did that for me, uh, like being on the bottom of uh, Puget Sound and looking out and seeing the darkness, you know, uh, like the, the ground of the ocean floor sweeping away from you into the infinite blackness um, has that kind of simultaneous, uh, you know, like aesthetic 
just feeling like overwhelmed aesthetically and then also just being very small and conscious of, you know, how vast the world is and, and unknowable. Uh, so, you know, we spent a, a bit of time on this project uh, actually, you know, working on scuba diving uh, simulation stuff very early on and, you know, quickly realized that that has a very limited uh, range, you know, where it, it's interesting and it feels like it's evoking that sense of wonder that we're interested in uh, and, you know, kind of moved in zigs and zags into, uh, you know, what we have now, which is rather than one story, you know, a collection of these uh, kind of short moments that are tied together by a, an overarching story. We'll get into that in a minute, but I'm very curious about something because, and this is, this is kind of going with a lot of the interviews that we've had with different people where it's almost as if those people who are going in game development, who actually didn't go to school for game development, there's an originality to their take on what a game should be, on how a game should feel and play that is far different from the norm that we get from those who are taught, listen, this is what the studios want, this is what the most quote-unquote gamers want, and so do this, whereas you're coming out with these unfinished swans and friggin' Edith Finches that are right out of left field in terms of their take. Do you think that's why that again, you've got a different background to pull from? Yeah, no, I think it. uh, you know, my interest in making video games is as a, a tool for me to explore things that I think are interesting to think about. And like with unfinished Swan, it was, you know, the sense of wonder and to a lesser extent, uh, children's books, you know, which are an evocation of that. And with this game, you know, it's drawing on, you know, the feeling of, being in these natural spaces, uh, you know, scuba diving, being out in the woods, kind of growing up in Washington State where you're surrounded by the vastness of the natural world. And then, you know, also, you know, experience with weird fiction that draws on some of those same kinds of, um, you know, themes of, of being in a vast, unknowable universe. Uh, and I think a lot of video games these days are made by people who are inspired by video games, which is a weird kind of feedback loop that, you know, for me, just as a you know player and as a human, I don't feel like I get that much out of it. Uh, partly, you know, it's that I've been playing games like that for a long time, and there's just like not that much new information there or new experiences. And you know, I'm someone who's really drawn to you know things I haven't experienced before, so I try to make games like that. But that being said, you know, there are a lot of people that are really interested in repeating experiences they've had before. Uh, you know, and that's just, that's not my orientation, but that is you know, like a fairly common orientation. Like that's what sports are, right? It's not like, yeah. you know, you're going to see a game, you know, a football being played in a radically different way. It's just, you know, different varying levels of, of proficiency. Um, but yeah, it's, it's surprising to me how many people, uh, now play games, you know, kind of as a sport, uh, where, you know, we give the same name to these experiences, uh, like they're both, they're all games, but you know, obviously what we're doing is, is a very different kind of project. What's funny is that the, with VR just coming into its own and being successful in terms of a lot of studios trying different things, they're being afforded that opportunity to define what it is that they do and not always fall mm-hmm. back on the, the VR game or VR experience. They're going to do whatever the hell they want. Whereas with games, like you're saying, there is such a history of those defined lines that are you finding that breaking out of that mold is actually proving to be more challenging than were you to just follow that, again, the, the predefined path that so many others have, have tread <laughs> well I, I think for me personally following that pre-designed predefined familiar path uh would be more difficult just because it would be hard for me to you know stay engaged and and excited about it but i think a lot of it you know comes not necessarily from the developers but from players you know, like what is it that players are really looking for and that translates into you know developers spending more time making those sorts of experiences and you know, even just in the last couple of years, like since the Unfinished Swan came out, it's been really great to see how many people are embracing, you know, the, like who are defining themselves as people who are interested in experimental work, uh, you know, things like Gone Home and Firewatch right. and, you know, any number of games that have come out have 
you know, been this kind of rallying cry for people that, you know, have kind of given the name, uh, you know, I mean, not that walking simulator is like the best name for these kind of things, but at least like it's a start at trying to say like, it's not just a game, like I'm not just a player, you know, I'm a person who really likes experiences kind of, you know, in this, in this part of the world, um, in terms of possibilities. So that's not just shooting really in great the face. how many people respond. When we look at what remains of Edith Fitch, uh, Finch, excuse me, can you tell our listeners what they can expect going in? Because it's, it's not a <laughs> typical game. So the TLDR, if you would. Sure, sure. Uh, so the, the you know top level description of the game is that What Remains of Edith Finch is a collection of short stories about a cursed family. And you play as Edith Finch coming back to the house that you grew up in. And as you explore this house, uh, you find in each bedroom a different story about how the occupant of that bedroom, like that family member died. And then you get to experience that story, you know, as a sort of playable game in its own right. Uh, so you are kind of going between being Edith exploring the house and then becoming these different family members living out kind of the last days of their lives. And each of those family members, you know, sees the world in a different way. Uh, you know, the stories take place in different time periods and have different aesthetics and very different mechanics. Uh, most of the game is played from a first-person perspective, but beyond that, you know, there's a, a really wide range of, uh, of different kinds of uh, mechanics and, and experiences that players can look forward to. So we got to take a look at the Molly and Calvin Finch stories, which were part of your PAX mm -hmm. demo. And before we get into the specifics of those actual episodes, what was the general feel that you got from the people that played the game? <laughs> uh, well, you know, at PAX, it's, it's a little hard to say, you know, how representative this would be. But, you know, I think people were very excited. Uh, everybody seemed to have a, a good time. And, you know, I think there was some pleasant surprise that there was so much gameplay in it. I think it's hard to show people, like to give people a sense of what this game is just from words and, you know, some screenshots. So I think, you know, people were seemed seem to be very happy uh, that the game had so many surprises for them. Do you think that it's a tougher audience to try to kind of entice into the game because it's not as kind of in your face in a lot of the, the bigger, so let's say triple a titles that are more action oriented kind of in that crowd is I, I've never actually been to a PAX. Do you find that it's harder to, to get the the audience or they just want that quick fix of something exciting uh you know i think for us uh we had a really good size of a booth you know we had maybe eight stations uh set up for people to play so we found that we had a lot of people that would come by um you know i think in that context it actually is sort of counter programming where there's a lot of games on the show floor that are very loud and very, you know, familiar variations on a theme. And PAX is a great place for that, where it's like the same thing from last year, but but prettier. People are genuinely really excited about it. But there's also, you know, a lot of people that are ready for something a little different. So having a game that is, you know, uh, comparatively quiet, that asks the player to spend, you know, 20 minutes with it and, you know, kind of slowly tease out what's going on, uh, was a nice and rest for some people right. uh, from the cacophony of, of the rest of the show. See, I put it in the same wheelhouse as Firewatch, which you mentioned earlier. And if you've never actually listened to our podcast, we have praised Firewatch a lot <laughs> since it came out. <laughs> like your type of game, that type of game is for us the, the drug of games like these are the experiences that we crave it's not the next call of duty it's this kind of thing so heck it's the reason we started this podcast yes. in the first place yeah so that's why when you are i think that it's the kind of game that it correct me if i'm wrong but it's more about the word of mouth of so many people saying you have to play this fucking game to see what these stories are versus the, Oh my God, these graphics are amazing. You need to play this new first person shooter, be it a call of duty or something else. And again, I think that that's more kind of over time because of that word mm -hmm. of mouth of people saying, fuck, you got to play this game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my hope is that, uh, you know, after the game comes out and there are a lot of people that are excited about it, 
uh, you know, they'll tell friends about it. And then, you know, you get to somebody who can play the game without knowing anything about it, uh, which for me are the kind of a lot of the seminal experiences are, you know, where I don't know anything about, you know, the game or the movie or the book going into it. I just know that it's, you know, something powerful and strange. Um, but it's really hard to convince people to play something that isn't, you know, it doesn't have like the good word of mouth yet. So, you know, we spend a lot of time up front with uh, these games telling people a lot of details about the game that, you know, I mean, not that it's going to ruin the experience, but that it certainly takes, you know, it chips away a little bit at the mystery, you know, that, that you're going to find. Right. Um, but the hope is that eventually it gets to a point where people can come in with like no expectations, just a sense of like, well, there's something here worth checking out. One of the design decisions that you've made was to follow multiple family members versus a single protagonist. What led to that specific choice? Uh, it's a good question. I'm not sure like where, you know, things kind of started off. Uh, but, you know, certainly the idea of doing stories about death uh, suggested that it would be, uh, you know, more sensible to have multiple stories than to have one person, you know, dying several times. Uh, you know, I think also looking at the inspirations for the game, like once we knew that we wanted to do something about the sublime, uh, like I started trying to find references for things like works of literature and movies and, uh, you know, other games that had done that well and weird fiction, uh, you know, people like HP Lovecraft or you know, Neil Gaiman uh, or Edgar Allan Poe, uh, you know, seemed like the closest I ever found to, you know, work that kind of echoed what we wanted this game to be. And a lot of the most successful work there were short stories. Uh, there's something about, you know, creating, you know, the sense of a universe that is bigger than you can possibly imagine um, that works better in a short format. Um, like it's a very intense kind of feeling getting to, you know, the sublime moment uh, that you know, each of these stories ends with that. Um, yeah. I think just looking at the references, the short story format felt like it would be a, a good way to do that. And it seemed like an interesting approach to take for a game. I like it because it is a different it's a different format just from the point of view of of writing that short story versus the novella or the novel. So you get the same kind of thing here in in game format where it's a a, a slice of life. It's not you're going to go in and the characters are going to change. It's no, you're going to experience a slice of that life that will give you some insight into who the character was, but don't expect a large sweeping story arc. That's going to change who your main character is, as you would see in various RPGs and things like that. And I love that we don't get nearly enough of that in games. And I, I adored that as soon as I started playing. The other yeah, thing, no, I hope you like the full game as much. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that I really liked, for for entirely different reasons, is the choice that you made to to be telling these stories of how they died, because again, it's more original than we would see in other games, and it paints this story of this fucked up family tree. <laughs> <laughs> and from someone who has one such tree, as I'm reading it and what's going on or listening to the, 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 the manner in which it's being told, that's what I'm coming around to. And I'm seeing fragments of things that have happened in my family in different ways and different things. And I'm saying, like, it's nice that somebody else's family is fucked up as ours was kind of thing. <laughs> but it's giving some really, really cool, dark stories that are intensely engaging like you are you're, you're tense while you're watching it it's so bloody interesting but it is still you can't look at it as a happy-go-lucky story it still is a very dark story overall at least from what we have seen so far yeah I, I think there's a dark kind of or an ominous feel that you have looking at it from the outside like just you know conceptually knowing that each of these stories is going to end with a death, you know, that it feels like, I mean, in some ways it's, it's a very explicitly morbid topic. And then it's also, you know, kind of um, like a, an inevitability that uh, is a little bit hard to, uh, you know, to come to grips with. But the hope is that once players actually, you know, get into these stories, that there's something about each of these stories that is really 
surprising and playful and that players forget about the context of it and get a little bit lost in, you know, whatever these stories are about. So it's not something that, you know, feels too heavy to experience. It's only, you know, kind of when you think about it afterwards or maybe think about it beforehand, uh, hopefully that it, you know, you get this heaviness. So, you know, the hope is that by the end you have, you know, this kind of bittersweet quality where the moment to moment, like lived experience is joyful but, you know, the kind of contemplative looking at it, you know, from a little bit of a distance, you know, you've got a little bit of, um, you know, like a, a slightly more sour or, uh, you know, kind of jaded perspective on it. And, you know, you kind of as a player or human, you sort of balance those things, uh, you know, in your own mind in the end. Given the game's concept, I can imagine it was pretty easy to just keep coming up with new cool stories you wanted to tell. <laughs> so was there a point where you knew that you needed to stop adding stuff on? And was there anything that didn't make the cut? Oh, I mean, there are tons of stories that we tried to make. Uh, some of them, you know, that we tried several times and, uh, yeah, just didn't work um, and that's, you know, kind of to be expected when you try a bunch of things that are unlike anything you've ever seen in a video game before you realize, Oh, that's why I've never seen it in a video game before because <laughs> it's really it does hard, work. uh, to do. And yeah, so we, we did a ton of little prototypes and some not so little prototypes, uh, some embarrassingly full featured, uh, you know, things that, uh, you know, that just didn't work often because, we couldn't figure out, uh, you know, either like, you know, a really interesting mechanic, uh, you know, or the story that that mechanic would follow. Um, like it's, it was really difficult to weave through a satisfying story into, you know, some things that otherwise seemed like promising avenues. Uh, like we had a story that we were working on about uh, biking at night, like on a mountain bike going down the mountain and, you know, like aesthetically it seemed really promising, but it's just a really hard, you know, place to layer in any kind of a meaningful story. And, and you have to keep dodging the sharks as well that, when you're going down the hill. Yes. <laughs> right, they're, they're dropping on top of you. Um, but yeah, no, there, there's a lot of uh, experimentation that uh, that didn't go anywhere, but you know, we ended up with a bunch of stories that, that did work. And I think we, as we did, you know, a couple stories that, you know, by the time we got maybe half a dozen stories that we really liked, it kind of became obvious where the rest of the stories probably would lie. Um, like one of the things we discovered was that stories about people getting lost in their own imagination was something that we kind of naturally gravitated to, that it wasn't you know, like kind of a explicit idea from the beginning, but the stories that worked tended to follow that model. So, um, yeah, then we just did more of those stories and tried to, you know, kind of rein them in and, and learn from the stories that had worked. One of the things that I felt as I was playing the game is I got a very strong layers of fear feel from it. Not so much from like the, the, the sheer fear of playing the game so much as just a sense of unease as you're exploring the house. I mean, you're not going through the actual front door. You're going in through the doggy door. And then you're kind of, which makes you feel like an intruder, even though she's saying it's her house now. You still kind of feel like mm -hmm. you're not really supposed to be there. <laughs> so there's that immediate sense of unease. And there's, of course, the little stories as you're you're getting there as, to the house as well, which kind of, again set you off kilter and the house in and of itself until you see the doors that are are sealed shut the, in and of itself the house is very inviting it's it's the kind of house that most people will like of course because they use books as insulation which you gotta love that and then there's yeah all of this after you yeah and then there's all this cool stuff to look at and 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 be it the photos the art you name it on, on the wall again that the design aesthetic is meant to be very welcoming, but it's the influence of the people that have been there before, which then make the house again, just uneasy. When I'm, when I went to the music box in the hallway before you go up the stairs and you turn it and then you get that score and it was immediately unsettling, but not so much that you want to turn the game and say off and say, eh, I need a break kind of thing. It's just 
something's not right here. And it was so compelling that even though I kept looking around when the music ended, I went back to the goddamn muse box, turned it again to keep listening to it as I continued looking around the house. <laughs> it was that well done. So, like, was it a very fine balance for you guys in terms of creating a setting that never quite allows the player to really feel comfortable, but it's not so scary that you just want to give up and stop exploring? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing is, you know, the challenge for us is trying to create something that feels both uh, surreal, but also familiar. Uh, Like, I think trying to find that balance uh, was was really difficult, especially because these stories kind of inherently wanted to be, you know, kind of ridiculous and over the top and, you know, hard to believe. So trying to balance those things with, uh, you know, something that that felt intimate. Like we talked a lot about uh, This American Life, the radio show, you know, being like an example of something that feels really human and intimate and familiar and trying to make the world kind of have that feel. Uh, so I think, you know, Layers of Fear is a great example, which I played somewhat recently. And I agree, like it felt eerily similar in some respects to the, you know, the house that we have in our game. Uh, but I would say Layers of Fear, you know, especially after the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, it stops feeling like a believable space at all. Uh, like you turn around and like everything is, you know, reconfigured itself. Yeah. And there's very little um, specific human touches in in that house. I mean, there's a lot of candlesticks, a lot of, you know, dressers, uh, like maybe some photographs, but you don't get the sense that this is like a space that people could actually live in. Like there's not enough bathrooms. There's, you know, no kitchen here, whatever it is that like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a part of your familiar world. So, you know, we tried to, to balance those things because I think surrealism works best for me anyway, you know, when it's, uh, you know, got some kind of real familiar underpinnings and you're just like stepping a little bit off into, you know, this unfamiliar place. Uh, like I think Hitchhiker's Guide does a great job of that with Arthur Dent. You know, like if you didn't yeah. have a human being who's witnessing these things, it starts to feel a little bit groundless and it just, you know, it's a little light. Uh, so in the house, you know, one of the things that we were trying to do was to actually make it feel overwhelming. Uh, like each of the stories is about someone being overwhelmed and you know, we wanted the house, even though it's a very, for the most part, believable space, everything is slightly exaggerated. Exactly. Uh, like there's just a bit too much on the walls, you know, for a, a house and especially a house in a video game uh, where it's like too much to take in. And, you know, that was a deliberate, uh, you know, design decision on our part to, you know, kind of try to push these spaces in the same way that on the exterior, the house looks like you know, in the beginnings anyway, like a fairly regular house, but it just, there's a point where you can push something a little bit too far uh, in a good way. And it stops being the thing it was and it becomes something slightly monstrous. So the house looks, you know, a little bit threatening, uh, you know, not because of anything specifically, but just like the scale of it and the details, you know, it's like too much to quite take in. Uh, and we wanted the whole game to have that feel. The, the the difference that I saw with Layers of Fear, a game which I thoroughly loved, is that Layers of Fear, while being the same kind of exploration game, was, as you said, far more unrealistic, of course. And it's more about a game of the madness that the, the, the character is going through, that you as a character are going through. But there, because you are constantly on alert you are constantly on edge. Everything has this appearance of being, be it grotesque or frightening or whatever. Whereas with this house, it felt as if the entirety of the house was maybe two degrees off from being level. Mm -hmm. And it's just enough that you're going, there's something not right here. I don't know what it is, but I can feel it. What happens with that is that it kind of builds this slow rumble of tension in your body. There's no crescendo where it makes you kind of feel (laughs) that I need to stop now, which layers of fear did for me periodically as it did for most people. It's like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I need to stop. And (laughs) this is not that it just is that slow rumble that just feels wrong. But what it does then is that when you have those moments 
of seeing the sealed doors, you're you're shocked a lot more by it. It's like, what in the fuck is this? And I literally went upstairs, and it wasn't until I went to one of the doors and saw that there was the keyhole, and you could look through the keyhole to get this bizarre bird's eye view of what's going on in the room. And that's when I went, holy fuck. And I ran back down. Well, there's no running, but I made my way downstairs quickly to get back to that first door. It seemed and say, what the hell's in here? And now I want to look in every single one of the doors to see it's, it's a quirk in a game. Again, a mechanic that's not used often. And because of the, the fact that you slowly build that tension and just kind of kept it simmering that those fucked up elements are like that much more they stand out that much more and you want to know i want to see each one of those that is brilliant that is exceptional game design in and of itself well it's yeah it's a very different uh different approach i think in layers of fear you know it's sort of like a drum that's getting faster and faster yeah like for two hours um, which is impressive in its own right, you know, uh, and there's definitely, you know, a crescendo there uh, for us. You know, we tried to uh, have a little bit more of a balance to it so that the stories were each crescendos or like a couple of crescendos in the stories. But then, you know, as Edith going through this house that is, you know, like you said, like two degrees off, uh, you know, you're able to kind of come back and uh, think about, what you just saw and, you know, think about how it relates to the stories that you've seen before and the stories that you're about to see, you know, and the bedroom that you're in currently. Um, so just trying to have a little bit more variation in the tension, uh, partly just so that we can raise the tension again later. Uh, you know, since we're interested in these, um, really emotionally draining moments, like, I mean, places where you have this feeling of being overwhelmed and the sense of awe and wonder, uh, you know, even though they can be very pleasurable, they take a lot out of you. Yeah. And it felt like the only way to, you know, do that in a game more than once would be to have, you know, these kind of peaks and valleys where, you know, as Edith, you're getting, you know, like time to recover from, from what you've seen in the stories. One of the things I noticed when we were playing through the game is that there seems to have been a considerable amount of care given to the audio engineering which is something we don't often see, and it adds sort of an incredible depth to the experience. How did you approach this aspect of development? Did you have a specific goal in mind with the audio? Um, I think the audio is, uh, I mean, it's funny you mentioned it. Um, one of the things that probably suffered the most in our transition between publishers. So last uh, June, we moved publishers from uh, Sony to uh, Annapurna Interactive. And unfortunately, as part of that move, we no longer had the rights to any of the audio that had been done oh, for the first oh, three wow. years of development. Jesus. So we had to start over from scratch, uh, you know, and do all new sounds. And, uh, you know, we had to hire a sound designer also because our, our sound designer had been part of Sony. Uh, so we brought on uh, Steve Green, who is the sound designer on Abzu. And you know, I think Steve did a, a really great job. Oh, yeah. I have no idea how he did it uh, because, you know, there's so much work to do when he came on that, you know, he and then he ended up hiring uh, two other sound designers to help him out, uh, you know, really just going full speed, uh, you know, building all of the different sounds that we needed because there's so many different stories and each of them have, you know, kind of their own library of sounds that they need. Uh, so, you know, I gave Steve some high level, you know, discussion, like we had discussions about what tonally we wanted for the stories, but I think that would be a separate podcast with Steve to ask him like, you know, how he really arrived at, at, you know, the decisions that he did. But I will say for my part, you know, one of the things that was really important to me in terms of the audio, uh, was the voiceover and, you know, particularly trying to find non-professional voiceover actors where we could, uh, because, like one of our goals in this game is is creating this sense of humanity and, and this kind of intimate feel. And I think, for me, uh, voices in games are one of the most effective and some of the most cost-effective ways of bringing that. Um, with the non-professional professional voiceover actor, you know, like Molly Finch, for example, you know, this little girl having the dream, uh, you know, there's a way that you can connect to her immediately 
as a real person in, in a way that is often difficult, I think, with a professional voiceover actor. Uh, so, you know, that was uh, also something that we tried to write too, so that, you know, the dialogue didn't require her to pretend to be something that she wasn't, you know, kind of wrote to the kind of character that, you know, this person was in real life. Yeah, the the it wasn't just the voice acting. We both commented on also just on the sound design in the game. Like we, I, I played it with you, it. Uh, notice? What's that? Well, what what uh, specific sounds so, were there? Anything that so uh, when yeah, when when I it, it wasn't so much like a specific sound. It was how everything wove together. One of the one of the things that uh, as a player in a game that ruins my experience when I'm trying to. I hate to use the word because it's overused, but immerse myself in that that moment is when the audio doesn't match the scene. And that happens more often than not. And right here, every like the memories, the the stories, as well as the house itself and the surrounding area of the house that you move through felt real like it felt like I could walk out of my house and that's what I would hear um little tiny things that just made it come alive and and it was such a welcome thing to hear because it it lended to that believability that that grounding that humanity of those scenes and that's what I really enjoyed about it oh well I'm sure our audio designer Steve Green would be uh quite happy to hear you say that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and again, I go back to that little music box, box, something as simple as that. And and again, that speaks to the, the everybody involved in the creation of the game. When you can look at an element that, oh, this is just going to be something that tells the story of, you know, someone building this music box for someone. It's a nice little story element. But then let's just make the music a little bit off too. Just, <laughs> just haunting enough that it stays with them yeah, as I, they're listening. Yeah. In video games, a big part of it isn't just the thing you make. It's the space that it lives in. Exactly. And we were fortunate to have, you know, a lot of downtime, but a sense of, you know, like a, enough of an ominous feel that the downtime isn't dull. You know, it's like your brain is thinking about things, but you've still got, you know, enough room to really appreciate uh, very small sounds, which in a lot of games, you know, would just be lost in exactly. you know, either like actual gunfighting or, you know, like a symphony orchestra or, you know, something like that. But we, we had a nice middle ground to play in. It's it's actually see, I don't even see it as a middle ground because it's a it's a part of the spectrum of sound engineering because you do have games say like again let's go back to layers of fear which had Mm -hmm. spectacular sound engineering everything was well done with the sound right to the one of the most haunting scores i've heard in a game in a long time kind of thing but that doesn't mean that always on always sound is a good thing either because very much like in terms of the graphics and the tension and how the story is told the music and the sound engineering do the same thing so that if you're trying to be more subtle and just a little off you can do that effectively with less just done more intelligently and that's how this came off so it's yet another aspect of the game that was very well done in our opinion no, thank you. Well, Trust again, me, I, if I we didn't feel that way, we wouldn't tell you. <laughs> again, we're fairly honest with our opinions. If you've listened to prior episodes, if we didn't yeah. like it, we would not insult you, but we were we, uh, critical. We lack filter is really so, what it So, no, this there. was good. The other thing that I really liked that I found very good was the writing. The writing was very clever, and I, I liked it. Now, we only did two of the games. We did Molly and, and Calvin's story, and I found that they were... I'm not going to say original so much, although, you know, changing to all the animals, so much original, especially once you get to the monster bit. But I liked the just the way the story that it was telling, but also the actual lines being delivered. Like when I'm playing a game and all of a sudden there's a line that's be it delivered or that you read and you stop and go, ooh, that's a good line. I like that. That speaks to the talent of the writers as well. Like, I'm assuming you did part of the writing on this or you just oversaw? Uh, yeah, no, I, I wrote all the scripts. You wrote all of the script. Okay, well then, guess what? I've been sucking your dick all this time. Because, yeah, that, that applies to you apparently because, yes, the writing was spectacularly well done. And it's one of those 
again, we're in, it doesn't have to be flowery or even lyrical. It just have, has to be just off a little bit enough that when a line is delivered, it is so in tune with what the story is trying to tell you, what the sound engineering is trying to tell you, the visuals, you name it, that when a line is profoundly well written, you're like, oh, damn, that was the perfect line for this moment in this game. And there were several of those. So it was there was a lot of appreciation that I felt towards. Well, in this case, once again, you that I was like, damn. <laughs> really yeah, well I, written. I don't know that I would agree with uh, profoundly well written as a description of it, but uh, we did try to not overwrite things. I think we tried to let you know the context and the mechanics and you know the the context really tell a lot more of the story and to have a very light touch with uh, with the actual dialogue. But that's again that is the mark of good writing as well. Like when you are. Again, this is not an interview about me, so I'm just saying this as a means of proving my point, okay? But all three of us write as well, in our own little way kind of thing. And one of the things that I've done over the years writing is working on prose in different ways where you can say the most with the least amount of words. With the least amount of lines, you've written it in such a way that the reader is going to insert by means of their imagination be it the best or the worst of a situation or any number of things. And that is a command of the language. It doesn't matter that it's more simple. It's what you do with that simple. And that's, again, what I got from some of these lines. It wasn't about being flowery or beautiful. You're not trying to write as if this was a Steinbeck novel. You're just writing these well-placed, well-written lines that do leave something to the imagination to a certain degree of the reader or in this case here, the, the, the player. And that's, again, speaks to real talent when writing. And if it wasn't, I wasn't tell you, I'm being honest. It was really well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yes, we've, we, we did a good job of keeping the bar low. You know, the the writing (laughs) didn't have to do a lot of work, uh, you know, because so much was already done, you know, with the other, other elements. Uh, so I think a lot of times when I hear bad writing in video games, you know, it's not that the person was a bad writer necessarily, but they've just taken on a lot. Like they oh, have yeah. to tell us a lot about this character and they also have to tell us a lot of very explicit things that we need to know in order to, you know, progress in this game. And, you know, we were able to, uh, to, you know, get that information out in other ways. So the writing could be a little freer and a little shorter. Now, one of the things, and you're going to actually set the record straight for us here because you said <laughs> that Molly was dreaming, but Joe actually had a theory on her as well when he was playing through this. What was interesting in her scene is that there were some very specific things that, besides the, the Kafta-esque transformations that were happening, that mm-hmm. hinted almost like she was suffering from, do you know what Prater Willie is? Uh, somewhat familiar. Do you want to so describe it a little bit? It's it's a compulsion to eat as a uh, a young adult, but it it has a nasty tendency of bringing with it sort of a mental deterioration. And what winds up happening is the person's body, through the course of this this compulsive need to eat, um, sort of just breaks down. And hmm. what was interesting is the way that Molly's story plays out is you get tinges of that and and unfortunately i I know this because i one of my friend's kids went through this um but it kind of it was sort of right on that that moment and it was and and whether this was intentional or not uh it was it just it hit that mark and it was just something that Hmm. immediately made me make this connection to it and i was like i wonder if that's what's going on with her like because it was such a profound moment especially that that transformation because and she starts talking certain words like I just needed to eat. I just needed to do this. And these are things that I've heard uttered from somebody who was suffering hmm. from the syndrome. So whether it was intentional or not, I mean, well done. Oh, thank you. You know, the, that wasn't a specific intention, but it certainly is intentional that in each of these stories, there is a lot that is left unsaid and unclear. Uh, one of the you know kind of hallmarks of weird fiction is, you know, a sense of ambiguity and, the inability to know everything 
that, you know, in, in each of these stories, we try to make it very conscious, um, you know, for example, using the actual literal text in the world to remind players that what you're hearing isn't, you know, a factual account. It's not like, you know, an objective truth. It's someone's version of it. And, you know, in this case, it's not even uh, the direct source of it. You're getting Edith's version of her version, you know, of Molly's version of the story. So there's a lot of room for people to, you know, kind of imagine what they think might have happened. I mean, Edith has a version that, you know, you're trying to kind of figure out, like, well, what does she think happened? But then also as a player, you know, you're left with hopefully enough room. Um, I'd, I'd never heard that particular uh, you know, description of it, but there are, you know, like a good uh, half dozen or so alternate versions uh, that we've heard of people that are, you know, it's funny, sometimes people are very convinced too because they'll they'll finish the game and then they'll be like, oh, well, clearly, you know, this is what happened to her. But then someone, you know, who's sitting next to them will be like, well, I didn't think that at all. That was, you know, much less, uh, you know, concrete. But that's hopefully something that each of these stories has is this uh, you know, level of ambiguity. And I think I like that particularly too because it allows for um, almost like an unreliable narrator type story where you – as the oh, yeah, out, yeah, as the outside viewer, you have to fill in the gaps, and so it it's such that unique experience. So, uh, I'm really happy to hear that that's that was the intention. Yeah, and the hope is that it's not like you know we're playing a game with players that there's this truth that we're dangling you know just out of view that you know we're going to surprise you with later. Uh, you know, it's more about just reminding people that you never you know get to know the truth at any time. Like everything that you're you know hearing is at some level you know a story. And uh, you just got to kind of figure out what makes sense ultimately to you. Just very briefly, you mentioned how what she says is being written on the screen as well. That was very well done. And what I especially liked about that, and I don't know if you intended it this way or if it was just a happy accident. If there's more than one line delivered and you look away as instead of going towards where the line is, say, because that's a path you're supposed to walk along. But if you look away, when the other line is presented, it changes your field of view back to look at the text. So you hear a line and as it's being delivered, you look down at something else distracted by, I'm still listening, but I'm distracting going, oh, look at this tree over here. And then boom, you're right back at the text again. And it's jarring and because you have allowed yourself to kind of get sunken into the story and be a part of it, it's jarring and you remember and it gives it a lot more impact. And that happened to me twice in two different spots. And it, the second one, especially when it happened, I went, damn, yeah, no, that's why you want to make sure you hear that second line that's being delivered there. And that gave it that much more impact. So again, just bravo on that front because I don't know if it was intended that way when there are multiple lines, but man, it had th that effect of really making sure you're paying attention to what that second line is. Yeah, no, as it turns out, uh, you know, we have a we had a team at one point of like 15 people, but uh, I was the person who uh, was responsible for, you know, figuring out how to get that camera to look at all these pieces of text which uh, you know, usually we're, we're more concerned that players are going to hate it. You know, we're trying to like knock into the hate it. I haven't heard anyone say that, oh, I really loved, you know, when my camera got grabbed. That's good to hear. Uh, we did try to make it very gentle. Uh, yes. But I think we also, you know, tried to find places where we could put the text where it wouldn't feel like we were forcing you to look at something that was unpleasant and just like requiring you to read this, but more like, you know, kind of, putting you into that character's perspective also of like, what are they concerned about? Where are they going to be looking? Um, we also had some difficulties, you know, because this game is being translated into I think 11 other languages at this point. Uh, those languages don't have voiceover. So the text is the only thing that those languages oh. have. And, you know, if you're playing the game in Korean, you might very well, you know, like not be looking at the door, you know, when the line is said. Uh, so we need to, gracefully you know, pull your <laughs> camera back uh, to look at that line in Korean, which also ended up with some very funny bugs, you know, because the text in the game is, you know, in the world, it's a three-dimensional object. You know, you have bugs about like, well, you know, in Polish, the uh, the last line clips into the coffee maker. Oh, like, ah, we got to move the coffee maker in the kitchen so that, you know, the text <laughs> won't, won't, you know, get obscured. Uh, but, you know, that was 
this is a very easy, like solvable problem at the end of development. It was just kind of like never seemingly never ending number of like, Oh, Russian again. (laughs) 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 We've been talking about it a bit now. So why don't you give uh, our listeners a brief rundown on exactly what Molly's uh, short story is, both from a story and even a gameplay perspective. Sure. Uh, So Molly Finch is the very first Finch family member who uh, you as a player you know, get to hear her story from. Uh, and, and she's also the very first family member who dies in the house. Uh, she dies in 1947, I think. She's 10 years old. And uh, when you come into her story, she's, you know, writing this in her diary. And she's describing uh, waking up and feeling very, very hungry. Uh, so she's been sent to her bed, uh, into her, to her bedroom without dinner and, uh, you know, kind of locked there for, you know, reasons that we never get to hear. Uh, but, uh, you know, then she is so hungry. She goes around her room looking for things to eat. She runs out of things in her room to eat. So, you know, she sees a bird, uh, outside of her window and then, you know, she, uh, finds herself transforming into a cat to, uh, chase after this bird. And then, you know, she transforms into a series of ever increasing animals, uh, you know, in her quest to satisfy her hunger. And it escalates quickly. <laughs> Not going to ruin what happens. But once you get on that boat, let me tell you. <laughs> like, oh, you're that hungry. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, and I think the hope was that, you know, it spoke to, um, you know, the kind of primal needs that we all yes. feel that aren't necessarily rational, that are just these kind of implacable compulsions uh and then also that it uh you know spoke to the uh strong feelings and chilling amorality of children uh that you know kids don't really see the world with the civilized you know blinders that adults have that there's a kind of very casual cruelty that that children are capable of and then moving on to calvin's story which we played as well that was. Uh, What's that? Do you, do you want me to describe that story or you just want to talk about it? I'm going to say something first. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Having played through Molly's and then playing through that, I don't want to say it felt completely different because there were obviously a lot of elements that were the same. But the manner in which the story unfolded far more organically with what you're doing as the player. Again, you may think brilliance a little, you know, saying too much for it, but I genuinely was sitting there playing this thinking, this is fucking brilliant. This is look it. And then it took me a while for, because again, I was, I wasn't going high enough and I'm going, Oh, I'm supposed to be doing all of this shit. And then as it's going further and further along, the dialogue that's being provided to you is becoming that much more impactful. When you get the line, the day he made up his mind to fly and, or that day he made up his mind to fly and he did was like, Holy fuck. That was phenomenal. So again, very different in terms of how it felt while still, while still feeling as though it belongs in the, 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 under that umbrella of this, this game, but different enough. And, and original enough in concept and in what it is telling you, the story it's telling you. So yeah, kudos to that one is for that one as well. Absolutely adored it. Oh, thank you. So now you can tell us about it. Uh, yeah. So you play uh, as Calvin Finch, who is, um, I think, I think he's also, no, he's 11, I think uh, in 1961 or so. And uh, he is a boy who always dreamed of being an astronaut. And uh, on the day that uh, his story takes place, he is on a swing set. And uh, his brother, who happens to be there and whose uh, story you'll hear a bit later, uh, he's the kind of father of the next generation. Uh, Calvin's brother, Sam, is, is the one who's uh, writing the story about what he remembers about his brother. And what he remembers is that that day his brother uh, just, you know, wanted to swing higher and higher and higher. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's the story. 
the thing is, is that it's presented in such a way that the tension keeps building. It, it's not like a little ratchety home swing set. This is on a massive tree overlooking a precipice kind of thing with a picket fence. Because if you're going to skewer a child, do it with a white picket <laughs> fence, of course. The blood really stands out. <laughs> but that tension continues to build and when you get to the point where you do that loop and shit just goes bad and you know it's going to go bad in advance because of the lines that are told to you you know if the wind hadn't been that bad or something along those lines those kind of things and you're like oh shit what's going to happen and then all of a sudden you're you're off to the races but it was really really well done for that and i i liked I liked the individual little lines that were given as well, which were very impactful because, again, you're playing as a child that you know is going to die, being a father myself. like, And, and it, the same applies to everybody. But, again, you raise kids too. It's like, shit, that's that's your number one concern from the moment your child, before they're even fucking born, is <laughs> like, I'm going to worry for the rest of my days now that this child is going to get damaged or, heaven forbid, die. And you're playing it. And it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> So, again, there's a level of discomfort, but an appreciation for the, that little story that's being told. Yeah, and, and hopefully, you know, it's something that feels, you know, oddly uplifting by the end of it. Like, we try really hard not to make it feel like a downer. I mean, you know, going into it that that this, uh, you know, family member is going to die. But beyond that, you know, everything else is really joyful. Like, it's. Yeah. Every character you know, in these stories ultimately gets what they want. You know, they're all stories of a kind of victory, just you know, not necessarily in the way that they might have intended. One of the things that I thought was was really well done is the the visuals are this amazing mash of beautiful and uh, I hesitate to say grotesque, but we've talked about it where everything's slightly off kilter and it sort of lends that uneasiness to it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of connections between the stories that unfold for you as the player and the rooms that you discover them in. And then from what I noticed, at least in the two that we experienced between Molly and Calvin, such as the tree, the tree looks like the same one that Molly was climbing on when she was the cat. Yeah. Good, good memory. Sweet. Okay. So, and, and I love that this is sort of woven through. So was that a specific choice to sort of, have everything not just be tied to the house, but have all the stories be tied visually to each other. Uh, what led you to sort of layer those experiences in this this surreal tone layered over the mundane? Um, well, I guess, sorry, the, the first part, uh, let me just address that, of, um, you know, these things like layering on top um, physically was something that, came about uh you know just accidentally like doing a couple of these stories and finding that it kind of just made sense to have them take place in the same environment like in the case of you know the tree that uh you know calvin is swinging on is the same tree that molly you know is is jumping on and you know after we did a couple of these stories we realized that uh you know just it made a lot of sense thematically to have these stories kind of, you know, co-inhabit the same spaces. And then it also, you know, made a lot of sense in terms of, you know, like our art team being able to make one tree and then being able to reuse that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, from a very practical standpoint, but, you know, I think it's more powerful to have yeah, definitely. a space that players, you know, recognize. And one of my favorite things is being able to see, the same place or the same object, you know, appear in a couple of different stories. It gives everything else like, you know, this sense of continuity that, you know, makes the game feel a little bit more cohesive, but also makes it feel more explicitly like it's about a family. Like you're seeing not just one story, but like, you know, the kind of the sweep of history, you know, as it affects this entire family. Uh, so things like, you know, the tree and the swing set, you know, is a, a good example that, you know, as Edith, you'll walk past that same swing set later, uh, you know, and uh, because you're seeing so many crazy things uh, in this game and it's all happening pretty quickly, it also helped to have some continuity there as well. 
so that, you know, players didn't need to remember like yet another environment. It was a place that they already knew, you know, from a previous story. So, you know, they can focus on some other things, you know, the second time or third time that, uh, that they see it. Although the jungle book was used a little bit too much. I, I noticed the uh, Jungle Book book a little too often. I'll <laughs> that oh, asset you, know, you reuse too much. That's uh, no, no, no. That that's all fixed. Uh, the version that you played oh. is is an older version. Okay. Um, we actually we created technology to allow us to uh, create unique book. Are you serious? That's awesome. For basically every book in the house. I mean, there's a few that repeat. But they're they're really minor. Uh, for the most part, every room and every bedroom, um, the books themselves are you know like the same shapes or like similar shapes, but they have unique titles and colors. Uh, that is know, so awesome. It feels like all different. Yeah. That is bloody Sorry, awesome. You played the. You I know, played the PAX the, demo. Yeah, that was. Uh, but I'll yeah. be playing the full version as soon as it comes out. But yeah, I cool. we love books as well. We're big readers. I have a <laughs> massive library. About three thousand books now in the house. Like we love books. So when I saw all these books in the house, I was like, "Oh my god, this is my fucking heaven!" And so to the point of, I'm looking at which ones you guys actually chose to put in it too. And I noticed the Jungle Book right away, and then I noticed it a little further up. Hey, the Jungle Book again. Hey, these people have a serious problem, and it's not all their kids dying. They can't remember yeah. which books they've bought. <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, Borges talks about the unique sadness of going into a bookstore and then finding a book you really like and realizing you can't buy it you because own it. you already own it. Yes, been there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Without giving too much away, of course, are there any family member stories that you're particularly fond of? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think Calvin's and Molly's story are definitely, you know, some of my fondest one is probably because they're just so accessible that it's something that, you know, players can really easily understand what the game is about after they experience it. Um, but I, yeah, I would say actually of all the stories, Calvin's in some ways is my personal favorite just because it feels like the kind of story that I can't imagine ever being told in another video game, that it's such a short focused thing that, you know, I think this game does really well. Yeah. That it's a place where, you know, a story doesn't have to last for an hour. Like, it's okay if it lasts for two minutes, uh, you know, and those can be two really great, memorable minutes, you know, with no no filler. So I think it was really happy, you know, that we could have space for, for very small, focused experiences. And I think that that's something that, once again, comes from word of mouth. When you're talking to people and you're explaining to them that, you know, in the 15 minutes that you would sit down and play a puzzle matching game or whatever, if you play this and you play quite specifically that story, I'm going to bet you that's going to stay with you for a long time. That's that's an impact. <laughs> yeah. That's something that you're going to remember as a gamer. Oh, yeah, I remember that game where it was that kid on the swing going round and round. And, and the bastards killed me at the end <laughs> on a white picket fence. <laughs> I'm not saying that's how he died, but anyways, uh, but, but no, that's, that's an impact that stays with you. And it was a very, very short little thing, but it was so profoundly well done that again, that's the kind of, of, of gaming experience that you want to rack up over your lifetime because it's those moments that you remember. So with that, thank you very, very much for taking the time to come and talk to us. We really appreciate it a lot. And the game is coming out twenty oh fifth, right? Uh, yes, it's coming out this Tuesday uh, for Steam and PlayStation Four. And we encourage everyone to pick it out. That's not a joke. We're not saying that just because he's here. Because again, folks have listened to the show; they know if we didn't like it, we wouldn't have invited you onto the show to be on. <laughs> and we said, no, we'll be a little critical later when we talk about it, but we don't want to insult you to your face. No, this was good, people. <laughs> Buy the game, and it doesn't matter if you're buying PS4 or Steam. I played the one on the PC, but it would be just as easy and well done on on uh, PS4. So yeah, pick it up, check it out. Definitely great, great experience. So once again, thanks for coming out, man. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to help. I believe the boys wanted to say thanks as well. 
I just wanted to thank you for creating an experience, not just a game, because I, I, those are the well, those are the things I look for. Those are the things that I, I don't f- get enough of in sort of that media. And, and I'm I, every time somebody does it and does it in a way that I feel is impactful and well done, it excites me. You've created an experience that not only am I going to buy for myself day one, guaranteed, this is something I will buy for other people to make them yeah, go yeah, through. Yeah. So like, oh, thank you. And from me, I'm a stingy bastard. That is a ringing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I did that myself with Cat's Cradle at one point where I love the book so much that I just went out and bought like a stack of them <laughs> to give to people when, uh, yep. when I need them. I have a roster of games that when people are like, ah, I'm not much of a gamer, but I'm thinking I'd like to try something. It's like, try this, 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 or this. And then get back to me. And this is going to be one of those where it's going to be like, guess what? This is really well done. Great stories. You're going to enjoy it. Cool. Well, you wait until you play the full game. Uh, you know, reserve that judgment. But, uh, oh, if you fucked up the rest of the game, game, we'll talk about it later. I assure you. Yeah. I yeah, also really appreciate, uh, you know, seeing where the influences are this coming from kind of in line with a lot of my general interests and seeing those elements popping up even in the small bits of the game really have me excited uh, of where you're going to go from there. And it, you, your imagination being brought forth in the game is I can't wait to see where things go beyond what we've already gotten. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And no, I, uh, you know, there's a lot of really great uh, literary references that, that I came across that I hope that, uh, you know, people will be encouraged to go out and, you know, read more of, like, especially Lord Dunsany, which I can't believe no one talks about Lord Dunsany, but he's got these amazing, bizarre, wonderful short stories. Uh, one of the games, one of the stories in uh, Edith Finch is like a direct, you know, inspiration from uh, one of his stories that was written in 1912, I think, but still feels like really contemporary. Um but yeah. Awesome. Hopefully we'll go ahead and find it. Very cool. Okay. Well, you can find the show notes and you can find this episode on For the Lore. You can find us on Twitter at For the Lore or individually. I am Zen Buddhist. Vince is Samodian. Joe is Loader ZJ. And are you on uh, the Twitters as well? Uh, yes, at Giant Sparrow. There you go. Check him out. Buy the goddamn game. Let us know what you thought of it. And as we finish playing it, we will be discussing it on future episodes as well. So once again, thank you very much for dropping by, and it was a pleasure having you here. Oh, my pleasure. Well, I nearly about starved to death down in Memphis. I run out of money and luck. So I bought me a ride down to Macon, Georgia on an overloaded pole. Thank you for listening to For the Lore. Each week, the show is broadcast live on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. Stop by forthelore.com slash live to join the conversation and have your thoughts discussed on the show. If you'd like to hear more from the guys, check out Comic Book Informer, a weekly podcast from Vince and Roger, as well as Popcorn Ronin, a bi-weekly movie, TV, and anime podcast. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. 